All right, good evening. Thank you all for bearing with me on the time change tonight. Um, got back to school night, trying to get back in. It's Thank God it's virtual, so you know, get, get to do it from, from right here. Don't have to go anywhere. So, uh, so I appreciate uh, you bearing with me on that change of time and that you're here. So that's great. Um, scheduling notes. So because we meet on Wednesday nights, so this is going to be our last class for a few weeks because next Wednesday is going to be Rosh Hashanah, the, the second, it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be the second night of Rosh Hashanah, the third night, the, the last night of Rosh Hashanah, the end of Rosh Hashanah. The following Wednesday is going to be Kol Nidre night, Yom Kippur evening. Uh, the following Wednesday after that will be the second day of Sukkot, Yom Tov. The following Wednesday after that will be the last night of Simchat Torah. will also be holiday that night, the end of the holiday. And so we're not going to be any of those four Wednesdays. So probably the next time we get together will be the Wednesday after that. I didn't check the date. I think it's going to be like October 6th or something, 5th, 6th, something like that. And, uh, and it's still a topic to be determined. We're closing, we're, we're finishing up the Fundamentals of Prayer series. This, uh, this High Holidays Fundamentals of Prayer is an add-on to, we did about, I think, 11 weeks before this. And uh, we're going to be looking for a new topic. I have some ideas. I'm also, if you have ideas, you're welcome to send them to me. And uh, we'll start a new series after the holidays. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the high holidays, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and specifically try to relate it to prayer, which is pretty easy when it comes to these holidays because there's a lot of praying going on on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Um, last week we spoke about Rosh Hashanah, so I figured this week we should speak about Yom Kippur, otherwise we're not going to have a chance. So what I want to talk about is one specific practice that we have when we daven, when we pray on Yom Kippur, that we don't have throughout the rest of the year. It's something unique, some, some, something that's, that's different. And that has to do with the way that we recite Shema. So Shema, one of the most famous prayers that in all of Judaism, and, uh, and hopefully we're all familiar with it, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, Listen, Israel, Hashem is our God, Hashem is one. We could spend many, you know, multiple classes discussing what that verse is, is telling us, why it's so fundamental, but that's not what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about the next verse. The next thing we recite after we say Shema is we say, Baruch, Shem, Kivod, Malchuso, Leolam, Ba'ed. And loosely translated, that means Baruch, blessed, Shem is the name Kivod Malchuso, the honor of his kingdom, Leolam Ba'ed, forever. It's a basic translation, kind of hard to understand what that means. Um, blessed is the, the name of the honor of his kingdom forever. Kind of hard to, to put that together to, and, and really understand it. So hopefully we'll together try to get a deeper understanding. But what I want to specifically try to answer and explore tonight is why is it that we recite this phrase differently on Yom Kippur than we do the rest of the year? How is it different? So the rest of the year, when we say Shema, we say the verse, the first verse of Shema out loud, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. But then when we say the second verse, Baruch Shem, we say it in a whisper. That's, uh, that's the halacha, that's what Jewish law dictates, is we should recite that verse in a whisper. It goes all the way back to the Talmud, already taught us that, and uh, that's been the tradition for thousands of years. However, on Yom Kippur, it changes. On Yom Kippur, starting from the eve of Yom Kippur and following through all the way till the end of Yom Kippur, all the way through Ne'ilah, the very end of Ne'ilah, we say it, we say this verse out loud. Baruch, shame, kavod, ba'ed, out loud. Certain places people, you know, get it all out. They say it really loud. It's an opportunity to just call it out. An opportunity we don't have the rest of the year. 
And the question is why? Why is it, first of all, that we normally say it quietly? And why is it that specifically on Yom Kippur, we say it out loud? So like many questions in Judaism, there's, there's multiple answers, multiple approaches. But what I'm going to share tonight, the most of the class is based on an essay by Rabbi Matisyao Solomon. I think I quoted him last week already. Rabbi Solomon is a leading rabbi in America. He's very elderly, actually, now. Um, and uh, he, he's what they call the mashkiach, the spiritual guide in the, the largest yeshiva in America, in Lakewood, New Jersey. So Rabbi, so, so what we're going to share is based on, a t based on Rabbi Solomon's teaching. So let's start with, you know, go back to the sources. So there's a couple of sources that discuss how we're to recite Baruch Shem, and they may actually seem to be in contradiction. We'll see that it, that's not necessarily the case. So the first source I want to look at is a midrash. I put it on the source sheet if you have it. If you're not, if you don't have it, you could just listen in. I also dropped it in the chat. So the Midrash says as follows. So our sages teach us that at the time that Moshe, Moses, went up to the heavens to receive the Torah. So on Sinai, he goes up to the, he goes up to the to the to the mountain and he goes to heaven. And it says we have a number of accounts throughout the Talmud of like what happened when Moshe was in the heavens. And it says there. He heard the angels saying to God this line, Baruch Shem Kivod Ba'ed. And again, we'll loosely translate that. Blessed is the name of his honored kingdom forever. And he, he overheard the angels saying this prayer. And he brought it down to the B'nai Israel, to the children of Israel, to the Jewish people. And he taught it to them. So the, the Midrash goes on and says, so why don't we say it publicly? Why do we say it quietly? So the Midrash gives a little metaphor. It says, Rabbi Asi said, Rabbi Asi said, to what is it comparable? What can we compare this to? To one who steals jewels from the king's palace. You go into the king's palace, you steal some jewels, and it's it would be a man, he steals the jewels, and he goes home and he gives them to his wife. But he tells her, don't wear them in public, only in the house. Why? Because I stole them from the king's palace. I don't want anybody to know that I stole them. Okay, so that's the, the metaphor, that's the parable. And the Midrash says that that's comparable to what Moshe did. Moshe went and he, so to speak, stole this prayer from the angels and he brought it to the Jewish people. And, and therefore we don't recite it out loud, we recite it quietly. It's like, you know, keep it in the house, basically. You know, don't publicize this. Keep it quiet. But, says the Midrash, but on Yom Kippur, when they, when Israel are pure, like ministering angels, then they say it publicly. Baruch Shem, Kevod On Yom Kippur, we reach the level, we're like angels. You know, we don't eat, we don't drink. We're standing we're just like angels. So on that day, we don't have, generally, we don't have physical pleasures. On that day, we're like angels. On that day, we're fit. We can say this, this prayer that uh, you know, belongs to the angels, so to speak. So of course, we read this and we, our reaction is probably like, okay, what, what on earth is this talking about? What's this telling me? What's it teaching me? What does it mean that it was the, that Moshe stole it from the angels? Is this stolen goods? You know, why can't we just say it out loud? What what are the, what are we trying to bring out with this with this metaphor? What what bottom line? What's the reason why we can't say it out loud? What's the reason why on Yom Kippur all of a sudden we're like angels and we can say it out loud? But let's go a step further in our question. There seems to be another source in our tradition that has a totally different reason why we say it quietly. And that is a passage in the Talmud. And that's number two, number three on the sources. So we're working through our source sheet pretty fast tonight. Um, number three on the sources says as follows, why do we say it? And the question is, why do we say Baruch Shem in the first place? Now you may be aware 
that the verses of Shema actually come from the Torah. They come from Devarim, Deuteronomy. The verses of Shema, the paragraph of Ve'ahavta, the first paragraph, the other paragraphs also come, but they're not attached to each other. But in the Torah itself, the verse of Shema is attached to Ve'ahavta. So it says, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, Ve'ahavta Eis Hashem Elokecha. But it does not say, in the middle, in between those verses. So the Talmud is wondering, so why do we say it? We've been saying it for a long time. Why do we say the verse Baruch Shem in the middle? So it goes on, it says as follows, as Reish Lakish, that's the name of the rabbi, elucidated. Because Reish Lakish said, you go back to all the way to the lifetime of Yaakov, of Jacob. And Yaakov gathers his children around him before he's going to pass away. And the verse says, and Yaakov called to his sons and he said, gather, and I will tell you what will occur at the end of days. That's a verse in the Torah, the end of Bereshis, the end of Genesis. Yaakov gathers his children. He says, gather, I'm going to tell you what's going to occur at the end of days. Explains the Talmud. What did he mean by that? Yaakov desired to reveal the time of Mashiach. And as he was about to reveal it, he couldn't. The heavenly presence left him, and either he forgot or he never knew he was about to know. It was about to die. I'm not sure, but he wasn't able to say it anymore. And he said, maybe, God forbid, there's a blemish amongst my offspring. Maybe the reason I can't tell you is because one of you, one of you, my children, has veered from the path. Maybe one of you isn't a proper believer in God, isn't walk, following in God's ways. Maybe that's why God is taking away my ability to reveal to you the time of the Mashiach. And his son said to him, Shema Yisrael. Yisrael, by the way, is, not, is, is Yaakov's other name. That's where the name Yisrael comes from. Yaakov was renamed Yisrael. So they say, listen, Yisrael, our father. Hashem Elokei, Shema Yisrael, listen, Yisrael, listen, Israel, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. So the Midrash says actually that they were the first to say that verse, and that when they said, listen, Israel, they were actually talking to Yaakov. That's who they were calling Yisrael. And they said, no, we're all believers. Hashem, 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 our God is only one God. We're all believers. There's no blemish amongst us. So, and they said, just as in your heart, there is only one, so too in our hearts, there is only one. At that moment, says the Talmud, Yaakov opened up and said, after he heard them say, Hashem Echad, God is one, then he said this verse, Baruch Shem Kavod blessed is the name of his honored kingdom forever. That's where this verse comes from. Yaakov said this in response to his children when they said Shema. So the Talmud says, the rabbi, so the rabbi said, what should we do? Should we say it? Well, Moses, Moshe didn't say, in other words, in Devarim and Deuteronomy, it doesn't say it. It goes from, it says, it has the, 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 the words of Shema, and it doesn't have Baruch Shem following them. It goes right to Ve'ahavta. On the other hand, Yaakov, Jacob did say it. That's how he responded to the words Shema. So should we say it or not? We don't know what to do, the rabbi said. So that's why they established that we'll say it, but we'll say it quietly. We don't want to make it seem like it's really part of this, maybe. We're going to say it quietly. So this is another source for why we say it quietly. Not because, not like the Midra said that it's stolen from the angels and we don't, you know, we want to keep it hush-hush, so we say it quietly. But what seems to be a totally different reason, the reason why we say it quietly is because, is because on the one hand, Yaakov said it. On the other hand, Moshe did not say it. So what should we do? Okay, we'll, 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 we'll say it quietly. So is this just a totally different approach. You know, sometimes we have that. Sometimes we have disputes among our sages as to the idea behind something, the source behind something. Are these totally different ideas or can we actually reconcile them, bring them together, and could they actually be speaking of the same idea? So we have to really understand what this phrase is, Baruch Shem. Then we can maybe understand why we say it quietly. Then we can also understand why we say it out loud on Yom Kippur. If we think about it, the, the, the phrase, 
doesn't seem actually so different than a regular blessing that we make. And regular blessings we make out loud all the time. So it has the baruch, right, blessed. A normal blessing is baruch atah Hashem Elokeinu Melech HaOlam. So we say baruch at the beginning, which for now we'll translate as blessed. Also, it's a whole topic in itself, what that means exactly. You know, we're not blessing God, or maybe we are. That's its own topic. Blessed. And we also mention in a regular blessing that God is king of the world. So we have kingship. We have God being king in a regular blessing. So what's different about Baruch Shem that we need to say quietly? It, we say blessings out loud. Why can't we say the, the phrase of Baruch Shem out loud? It doesn't seem so different than a regular blessing. It has the word Baruch. It has the mention of God as king, but a regular blessing has that. The difference seems to be centered on the words kivod mahuso, the honor of his kingdom. Okay, so for some reason, because we call his kingdom not just, we don't just refer to God being king, but we say that he's, he has an honored kingdom. For some reason, because of that, we have to say it quietly normally. But on Yom Kippur, it's okay. So hopefully we're like completely confused by now and, uh, and have no idea what's going on. And so then we'll, you know, when we discover it, it'll be very exciting. So just to, to recap so far, there's something very unique about Yom Kippur. On Yom Kippur, as opposed to the rest of the year, we say Baruch Shem out loud. The rest of the year, we say it quietly. We want to know why the rest of the year we say it quietly, but on Yom Kippur, we say it out loud. We have a midrash that tells us why. The reason why is because this phrase of Baruch Shem actually was something that the angels would, would say. It's a praise of God that the angels would say. Moshe, Moses overheard it. He brought it down, but because it belongs to the angels, he said, we're going to say it. We're not going to say it out loud. But on Yom Kippur, where we're like angels, it's okay to say out loud. That's one idea. We have another idea that this was the response that Jacob, that Yaakov gave to his children when they said the verse of Shema, he said back, Baruch Shem. So the rabbi said, Yaakov said it after the phrase of Shema, but yet in the Torah recorded by Moshe, it doesn't say it. So which one should we do? We'll sort of make a compromise. We'll say it, but we'll say it quietly. And now we're, at, we're adding on, we're asking, and really what's so unique about it? It's, it seems very similar to a regular blessing. The only difference seems to be is that it refers to God's kingdom and kingship as honored, honorable. And why does that make a difference that all of a sudden now, can't say it out loud. This is the secret prayer of the angels. Can't say it out loud. So Rabbi Solomon quotes from a work called Avodas Levav, and this work suggests as follows. We have to understand what is the difference between an honored kingdom and a kingdom that's not honored, that's not honorable, let's say. So in a kingdom in which the people, the uh, citizens recognize that the conduct of the king is for their own good and for the good of the country. And so, that is an honored kingdom, an honorable kingdom. A kingdom where that is not honorable is a kingdom where the king is, does everything for his, himself, or at least as perceived by the people, certainly. But and certainly if he does it, you know, first we can even talk about perception. An honored kingdom is where the people perceive that the king has their best interests at heart, that what he does is for them. It's the royal we. The we that represents not just the king, but the king represents everybody. A, 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 king, a kingship that's not honored is one where the people perceive that the king does not have their best interests. And certainly, if he really doesn't have their best interests, right? Certainly, if you have a king who's fierce and, and, and uh, stingy and really is, is only out for his own honor, does not consider the feelings or the needs of the people whatsoever. He only looks for his own gain and the gain of his, his kingdom, doesn't care about the citizens. So 
that's a kingdom, certainly a kingdom. He's the king, right? He's powerful. He's the king. He has a kingdom, but it's not an honorable kingdom. It's not one where the people will, 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 will respect such a kingship. As opposed to a king where the people recognize that he does have their best interest. He's looking out for them. That's on this plane, on, the, on, on earth, on an earthly plane even, that's the case. So the same is true when we talk about the kingship of God in this world. You know, the Talmud teaches us that it says that at the end of days, things are going to be different than now. In what way? So now, now it says when something bad happens, or I should start with something good. When something good happens, there's a blessing that we say, Hatov he's the good one, he's, and he continues to do good. And then there's a, when something bad happens, we say a different blessing. We say a blessing, Baruch Dayan HaMS, that God is the true judge, like, you know, God judges, but we don't have the ability to say, this is good, when something bad or that appears to be bad happens. That's what the Talmud says. But it says that at the end of days, things will change. At the end of days, we'll be able to look back. And when something that we may have perceived as bad would happen, we, wouldn't, we won't have to say, Baruch Tayyang Hames, and say, oh, you know, God knows. God is the true judge. But rather, we'll actually be able to say with conviction, Hatov Hametiv, something that appears to be bad or would appear to be bad now. At the end of days, we'll be able to look back and say, that really was good. Really, everything that God does is good. And the idea is that, you know, you come to enough classes, you, you, you attend enough, you know, you, you, you study Torah enough, you listen to me enough, you'll hear and you'll learn and you may accept even that everything that God does is good. And it's something that we can, we can know, we can here, we could believe, we can know it, that ultimately everything that God does is for a, a good purpose in the end. We don't always understand why. We don't see it necessarily. It's very difficult. We're not God. We say, in fact, the prophet says, Lo my thoughts are not your thoughts. We can't really understand God's ways, but we can accept such an idea and, and, and know it to be true. But even with that, we won't necessarily, when push comes to shove, when, when we experience something difficult, when we experience a challenge, we, we can know that it's good, but we won't necessarily feel it. We won't necessarily feel it. We'll still feel sad. We'll still feel bad. And it's perfectly normal. And that's actually what the Talmud is telling us, that because of that, we won't recite a blessing that says, you know, this is good. We'll recite a blessing. God is the true judge. God knows. But we can't bring ourselves quite to that level at, in the world that we live in now. We're not, we're not there. That's us. But an angel, spiritual being, whatever that is exactly, right, doesn't, is not from this, this earth. An angel, something that only exists spiritually, can, you know, perceives God on a much greater level than, than we do, they can know with conviction, whatever that means, you know, an angel to know, but an, an angel, the sages are telling us, an angel can know with conviction that all that God does is good. And that brings us back to our, our term here, our phrase, Baruch Shem Kivod And we explain that, that the only difference between this phrase and a regular blessing is that, or the main difference is that little word kavod malchuso, that we refer to God's kingdom as an honorable kingdom. That's the difference. A regular blessing also refers to God as king. But in this phrase, we call it an honorable kingdom. And what we're saying is that all that happens in God's kingdom is, for our, is in our best interests. It's an honorable kingdom. The king of this kingdom has our backs. The king of this kingdom is bringing this world to a better place, ultimately to perfection, to where it needs to get to, 
and we don't necessarily understand it. We don't necessarily understand how things come together, but it's an honorable kingdom. But because we can't really fully perceive that, it's not really a prayer that we can say. The angels can say it. The angels can say it. They perceive God on a, on a higher level than us. They're spiritual. But we have a physical side to us, which maybe prevents us from having that full perception. That's how we were made. That's how God wanted us. That gives us the ability to be challenged. But that's how we are. So it's not really a prayer that's, that's, that we're really fit for. It's really something that belongs to the angels. But Moshe brings it down and he says, and he teaches it to us. But he says, you can say this, but let's not screaming out. We're not really holding there. We're not really on that level to be able to say this. We don't fully understand it. We, don't fully, we can't really feel it. So therefore, let's say it, but we're going to say it quietly. Yaakov, at the end of his life, is, he's on his deathbed. He's right on the brink. Yaakov actually had a lot of challenges in his life, and he didn't always take them, you know, again, Yaakov was, Jacob was tremendously righteous, but we do find that at times he has, he, you know, he, he, he gets upset by certain things that occur. He says to God, to God like, um, or he says actually that, you know, he says to Pharaoh in conversation, my years have been bad. They're Raim, they were bad. Like he seems to be looking back. And then, but, but by the end of his life, he realizes, he looks back and realizes everything was, was for the good. At the end of his life, he's really on the brink of death. He's almost moving on to that spiritual plane. Yaakov is able to now say, Baruch Shem. He's able to say, he could look back and say, it's an honorable kingdom. Everything was for a purpose. Everything was for the good. And not just say it, but, but really feel it, really internalize it. And so we can sort of latch on to that. We know that Yaakov could say it, so we could say it too. But we can't say it out loud. We can't say it with the full level of conviction that Yaakov said it. So what we're really doing, and this is based on a teaching of Rabbi Moshe Chaim Mutzato, the Ramchal, he, he connects these in this way. What we're saying is that, that these two sources actually could be really telling us the same thing. They really come together. This is a prayer that belongs to the angels. Moshe got it from the angels, taught it to the people. But it wasn't the first time we had heard it, apparently. You know, Yaakov had said it also when he achieved almost the level of an angel, when he when he was on, on, the, on the brink of death. And since Yaakov said it, so we could say it too. But we're going to say it quietly. It's a prayer that belongs to the angels. We're only going to say it quietly. However, one day a year, we're like angels. One day a year, we can say it out loud. One day a year, we can maybe achieve the level of clarity necessary to say Baruch Shem out loud. That's on the day of Yom Kippur, where we are like angels. But my question still is, what is it that allows us to say it? So we could say that, you know, Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, it's a tremendously, you know, holy day. It's a tremendously spiritual day. We are fasting, we're acting angel-like, and maybe that just propels us sort of to a new heights, new levels. And because of that, we have the clarity to be able to, to recite it. Maybe that's why, maybe that's why we could recite it on Yom Kippur. But maybe there's maybe even something that's going on that's a little bit, a little bit deeper. And this is a fascinating idea, very enlightening, again, shared by Rabbi Matisyao Solomon. He points to actually, again, in the writings of Ramchal, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, in Derech Hashem and the Ways of God, where he's discussing and comparing these different sources about Baruch Shem, the Talmud story about, about Jacob, Yaakov saying it to his sons and comparing that to Moshe taking it from the angels. And when he is describing the difference between us as humans and the angels and describing the difference between our, their ability to say it and our inability to say it, he uses an interesting term. And he says, 
Um, he says that we haven't reached in, in lower beings, us humans, non-angels. He says, we can't really say it. And the language is because they are not yet perfected and there is bad mixed in them that they have not cleansed themselves of. And therefore we can't say it. So the, the, the terms that he uses, he says, we still have some bad mixed within us and we aren't completely purified. That's why normally we can't say it. And what he seems to be saying is that somehow the perfection of our character somehow impacts our ability to say these words. And that's surprising because it doesn't seem to be important, really, our character. It should be our intellect, you know, our, uh, our ability to understand, our ability to recognize God and recognize how God operates in the world. That seems to be all that we're lacking. If we could just understand better, if we could just recognize God better, we should be able to say this all year long, but we can't. So only on Yom Kippur, that should be the, what this, this is all about. But he, the way that he says it implies that somehow it's our character. There's still, he says, there's still bad mix. We haven't perfected ourselves. And somehow that impacts our ability to say this. And that's why I want to ask why, why, why should our own character impact our ability to say Baruch shame throughout the year out loud to recognize that all that God does ultimately is good, not just to recognize it, but to internalize it, to feel it. Why does our character hold us back? So Rabbi Solomon points out that if you think about it, in many situations, our intellect really is enough to guide the way that we feel towards something. If we feel that it's good, if we feel that it's bad. You know, for example, if we know that there's a medicine that's good for us. So even if it causes uh, some kind of pain, and I think these types of examples are, are less common nowadays, they've kind of worked out that medicines don't cause as much pain, but you know, take a, a vaccine for, for example, you know, it could hurt your arm, uh, you know, for a couple of days, it could, uh, it could make you sick for a day or two, but we understand that even though it causes us pain, but this is, this is good. This is for our for what's best for us. Now, on the other hand, if the doctor, if a doctor would tell us, you know, if you feel pain in your arm after this, it means that it's not working and it means that actually you're very sick. So all of a sudden, that pain in our arm would totally change, our perspective would totally change about what that pain represents. So it's not the pain itself that tells us, you know, whether what happened to us is good or bad. It's our understanding of what's going on. It's our intellect. If we know, you know, if, if an expert tells us, if somebody who knows tells us that this pain is good, then we'll know that it's good. And we'll, 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 we'll be able to accept that and feel it. If somebody tells us that it's not good, you know, it's, it's bad, it means that something's wrong, then we'll be really disturbed by it. And we'll find it to be really painful. If a person was told, by someone who they trusted, a, a doctor that they trusted, that you're gonna, I'm gonna give you a certain procedure, a certain medicine, the more painful it is, the better for you, the better the outcome. So the more painful it is, the more joy the person would have from it. Why? Because again, it's not necessarily what, what tells us whether something is good or bad, it's our intellect. That should, just knowing, that it's good or knowing that it's bad should really be enough to guide the way we feel about something. So one would think that the same could be true as we relate to our experiences, that if we know that everything that God does is ultimately for our own good, is ultimately for the best, any suffering that we experience, there's a reason for it. We don't understand it. We don't know how it works. We don't run this world. It could be that's what our soul needs. It could be we have to go through this experience for something later in our life. We don't know. I don't know for sure, right? Or something, you know, less dramatic. You know, something doesn't work out the way we want it to work out, whether it's for a job or a relationship or whatever. It doesn't work out. 
So again, if we know that everything that, 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 that God allows to occur to us is ultimately for our good, then we should be able to just feel that through and through. Usually our intellect guides us. So why is it different here? Why is it that still we struggle with this? Why is it that still we have difficulty really feeling it, um, allowing it to uh, really um, permeate us, really to um, inculcate that feeling within us? What holds us back? So it seems, says Rabbi Solomon, based on this, teaching of the, of the Ramchal, of Rabbi Moshe Chaim Mutsato, that it has something to do with that there's a little bit of character that needs perfecting still, right? It's that there's st- we haven't perfected ourselves yet. We're lacking in our character. And he means even interpersonal. And why does that make a difference? Why does it make a difference to this point? Sure, all, you know, it should be, if we know that it's good, we feel it's good. Why would our why would any flaw in our character affect our ability to really understand that what God do- does is for the best? And the answer, he says, is really something amazing. He says, you know, everybody goes through different degrees of challenges in their lives. You know, certainly some people have greater challenges, some people have lesser challenges. And, but it's our job, so to speak, to respond when we experience something and be able to say and trust in God that this is ultimately for my own good. So whatever it might be, some again are much harder than others to say that certainly when it comes to to pain and death, it's really hard. And that may be its own, you know, sort of its own discussion, but let's say something that's not as, 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 as severe as that. You know, something like that doesn't work out the way that we had hoped. Again, it could be a relationship, it could be a job, it could be somebody's struggling in another way. So it doesn't work out the way that we that we want to. And a challenge is a challenge. We're not trying to diminish, you know, the difficulty and the challenges that people experience. We're not trying to say that it's not a challenge and that it's not hard. But how do we respond to it vis-a-vis how we how we relate to God from this challenge. Do we turn to God and say, how could you do this to me? How could you allow this to happen to me? Or do we say it's really hard, but I recognize that this is what, what need, you know, what I need. This is what God had in mind for me. That's for ultimately for my good. And what holds us back sometimes is our midos, our character. What do we mean? So for example, um, there's a there's a there's a a paragraph in Mesilas Yesharim, the path of the the path the straight path the path of the of the righteous that talks about pursuit of honor. I think we actually learned this paragraph back in a previous series when we were doing uh, ethics and uh, our journey to virtue when we talked about honor. So Ramchal Rabbi Moshe Chaim Mutzato he writes that. The pursuit of honor is what pushes us more than anything else, more than any desires in the world. The desire for honor, the desire for respect can push us, can dictate us, can direct our lives and our decisions more than anything else. He says, um, if not for a desire for respect and honor, he says, a person would eat whatever they could, you know, could afford, could get their hands on. They would wear whatever they, you know, they didn't want to have to wear such nice clothes, such fancy clothes. And again, it's a whole topic we, we talked about another time about also having self-respect. And but but you know, in a just in a in a little box, just one without getting into the exploring the full topic, but 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 the pursuit of honor, desire for honor and respect definitely dictates many of our decisions. Um, a person would live in a simpler house, would live much more simply, and it would be, they wouldn't need as much money, right? They wouldn't have to work as hard, if not for, for the desire for a certain degree of respect within society. And, and what are, what, what, 
what causes us to make certain decisions. Often it's just, I don't want somebody to say this and this about me. I don't want somebody to think this and this about me. So much of it is based on how we think others will perceive us. And that guides many of our decisions. And this is just an example of how our, our midos, our traits, our character can impact the decisions that we make in our life. And that also can impact how we respond in the face of a challenge. So a person loses a job or they don't get a job that they were hoping for or a relationship doesn't work out and they're very, very upset. And it's very hard and it's a big challenge. And there's no denying that these things can be very challenging. But again, how do we react? So somebody, one person might be mad at God. You know, how could you allow me, how could you allow this to happen? Why did this happen to me? But let's say we've, we've worked on ourselves and we could go even further and we can say, I understand this is for the best. I can say it, but I still feel sad. I'm still upset. Why? If it's for the best, then why do we feel sad? This is good. Why do we still feel sad? So it means we haven't fully internalized it. I know, I know that everything that God does is for the best. You know, Rabbi Shabbos has told me a hundred times. I know it's true, but, but I, I, I still feel sad. Why? So why? And the answer is because it could be in certain situations because of our honor. We, you know, why didn't the job work out? They, or why didn't the relationship work out? They didn't think I was good enough for it. And that upsets us. What will people think about me? These types of feelings can affect the way we feel about something that happened. So on the one hand, intellectually, we might be able to tell ourselves, you know, the reason why this didn't work out, this job, this relationship was because it wouldn't have been good for me, right? It's easy to say this is for the best in those types of situations. But why do I still feel sad then? Why, why don't I think that it was good? Because on the other hand, there's something else that's, that's, you know, bothering me still, which is a feeling of I've been disrespected, a feeling of I need that, that, that honor and respect. And again, sometimes we do, and that we, we learned about in a separate time. But sometimes we have to be able to let it go. And that's part of having a strong character and developing, perfecting ourselves is not worrying so much about our own honor. But sometimes that could be what's holding us back from really looking at it and saying, this was ultimately for the good. If we could put aside our honor, we can now take a new perspective on it. And we can think about how this actually was good. It's going to set us up for a new path in life, which will be a good path. It's easy to, fr make that, to frame that perspective, but there's, there's things that drag us down and hold us back. Even if a person you know, is suffering physically. So again, we can understand on an intellectual level that maybe that's what we needed. We can say, somehow this is for the best. I don't really understand why. I don't understand how God operates, but I know that what God does is for the best. So I know that this is what I needed to experience. Again, it could be that somehow this is a cleansing of my soul, something more on a, you know, a spiritual plane, a rectification that somehow I needed to go through. It could be something more on a practic practical, tangible level that, uh, I needed to go through this experience to, to be able to respond in different ways or to help others who go through a similar experience. There's different ways that it can play out. I don't know how it's going to play out ever until it does, but, but I can reason, I can think about it. I can frame my perspective and say, okay, God had, the, had something in mind and intellectually I can understand it, but I still feel bad. I still feel sad. I'm not happy about it. And why not? So sometimes, I'm not saying always, but sometimes it could be a different character trait that's holding us back. Jealousy. Why did this have to happen to me? You know, it's not fair that it happened to me. So-and-so has everything perfect. It's, I'd, be, I'd be totally fine telling God and turning to God and saying, I, I accept this. I understand that this is for my, the best for me. I'd be fine saying that if only, you know, so-and-so also had to experience it. Right. 
So sometimes, it, again, it could be, we have all the, you know, we have all the reasoning, we have all the intellect to be able to say it's for the best, but sometimes it could be that there's a mida, there's a trait that we haven't fully perfected that holds us back. And it could be that that's why Yom Kippur is the day that all of a sudden we can reach this full level. We can fully internalize it. We can feel that this, this, this idea that everything that is for the, is for the best and say the words, Baruch Shem Kibod out loud and praise God's kingdom as an honorable kingdom that everything that occurs within his kingdom is, is truly good. You know, Yom Kippur is a day that we're like angels. Why are we like angels? So, you know, Maggie dressing white. I don't know, angels are spiritual. They're not actually white, but we perceive them as white. You know, we, we don't eat, we don't drink like angels. We don't wear shoes. We wear sneakers. You know, we don't wear leather shoes. We do all these things that make us like angels. But there's a, a midrash that actually lists off even more than that. You know what else makes us like angels? Says the midrash, the Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer midrash. So our sages teach us that leading up to Yom Kippur, we're supposed to appease each other. If we wronged each other in any way, we're supposed to ask forgiveness, make up, make peace. And it says that the reason we do this is in order that all the hearts of Israel, of the Jewish people should be together at peace, each one with his friend, and that way, there's no room for accusations against us. Everyone's together. Everyone's at peace. And the Midrash says that the, the Satan, the accusing angel, you know, he comes on Yom Kippur and he wants to turn to God and say, don't forgive them. You know, they've been terrible this year. That's what he really wants to say, right? But then he looks and he says, he sees us. This is what the Midrash says. He sees us and he says, you have a nation here. That's like angels. I can't say anything bad about them. They're just like the angels. The Midrash says, just like the angels don't have shoes, the people aren't wearing sho leather shoes on Yom Kippur. And just like the angels don't crouch down, the people, they stand, you know, they stand on Yom Kippur and pray. And just like the angels are queen of sin, the Jewish people are queen of sin on Yom Kippur. And just like the angels have peace between each other, so too, the Jewish people on Yom Kippur have peace because we've made peace with each other leading up to Yom Kippur. And God listens to the testimony of the accusing angel, which is not an accusation, but rather it's a praise and God forgives and atones for our sins. And why? Because we're like angels. And what makes us like angels? Not only the way that we, we dress, not only the way that we don't eat and we don't have physical pleasures, but that which we are at peace with each other. Apparently angels don't fight with each other. And we, the truth is that we say this in our, in, in the repetition of the Musaf in on Yom Kippur. And, uh, and we see from here that the, the peace that we have between each other is part of the essence of the day of Yom Kippur. Look at number four on the sources. And in the Chazan's repetition, we're describing the day of Yom Kippur. We say, therefore, in your abundant mercy, you have given us this fast day of atonement and this day of pardon of iniquity for forgiveness of iniquity and atonement of willful sin. It's a day of atonement is the day God forgives our sins, a, a day when eating is forbidden. So now we're going to define what's this day about. It's a day when eating is forbidden. We all know that, right? Fasting on Yom Kippur. A day when drinking is forbidden. A day when we don't apply oils. We don't anoint ourselves with oils. A day when marital relations are forbidden. A day when wearing leather footgear is forbidden. And then it says, a day of instituting love and friendship, a day of forsaking jealousy and competition. It's a day that we come together. It's a day we're not jealous. It's a day we're not seeking honor. It's a day where we're at peace with each other. And that's part of the essence of the day. And that's what makes us like angels. And that's what we have to work on leading up to Yom Kippur and on Yom Kippur itself is being at peace with each other, not being jealous of others, not seeking honor. And when we do that, we become like angels. And then God 
will can forgive us for what we've done wrong. But the other thing that happens as a result is that now on such a day where we don't have these flaws in our character, we've rid ourselves of them. We're at peace. We, we're not jealous. We're not seeking honor. We're not upset at each other. So now that actually can affect the way that we look at the experience, the experiences in our life. And we could look at our challenges from a new perspective and we can take the knowledge that we know that what occurs to us is, is for the best. And we cannot just know it, we cannot just know it intellectually, but we can internalize it. We can really feel it because all those things that hold us back from feeling it, the jealousy of our others and the, the honor and all those things that might hold us back on a different day, on Yom Kippur, they don't hold us back anymore because on Yom Kippur, we've, we, we put those things aside. We put those on the back burner. We are, we, we are, we, we're at peace with each other. And so it's specifically on Yom Kippur that we're like angels. It's specifically on Yom Kippur, we can take the prayer that we stole from the angels, so to speak. The prayer that normally only the angels can really say out loud and scream it out. Because only they normally can really feel this prayer, can really feel that all that God does is for the best. But on Yom Kippur, where we become like angels, not just because it's this super spiritual day and it's this day where we don't eat and we don't drink and we dress in white and we're, we make ourselves look like angels and feel like angels. But it's also a day that we're like angels because we put aside strife. We put aside jealousy. We put aside pursuit of honor. And it's those things that actually hold us back from really being able to internalize the words of Baruch Shem. And it's on this day that we can call out those words out loud in our prayers and really say and really feel that the experiences, the challenges are for the good, they're for ultimately for a good purpose. And we can call out Baruch Shem Kivod Malchusol Yolam Vaed. And just to kind of loosely translate it, but maybe more specifically to what we are saying today, um, Baruch means an increase of blessing. There should be an increase of the shame, the name. A name is like a revelation. We should increase the revelation of the honor of your kingdom, of his kingdom, because we recognize the honor of God's kingdom. We recognize that all that God allows to happen in his kingdom is ultimately for a good purpose. We should, it should be increased, the revelation, the recognition of the honor of his kingdom. We ed for all time. Okay, wishing you a tova. We should be all be written and sealed in the book of life for a good year. Ashana tova, a good, happy, healthy, and uh, I always like to say a year of growth for all of us. Okay. Same to you. Amen.